welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sandlind and Talking Migration is supported by the Department of Politics and the Migration Research Group at the University of Sheffield. We often hear that it's better to help refugees in countries' neighbouring conflict areas than to admit a large number to settle in Europe. But whatever one thinks of this argument, it's hard to dispute that life for refugees in major refugee-hosting countries could improve considerably. And there are seemingly overlapping interests. European countries would like to keep people from seeking asylum in Europe, so they have an incentive to make life better for refugees where they are. And refugee-hosting countries, on the other hand, also have an interest in the economic goods that Europe can offer, such as grants and relaxed trading regulations. So in September 2015, the president of the World Bank, Kim Jong Kim, Kim Abdullah of Jordan and David Cameron, the then Prime Minister of the UK, met to discuss the so-called Compact model to create jobs for refugees in Jordan. The Jordan Compact was then agreed in early 2016 and a similar but smaller scale Lebanon Compact followed. Was the Compact model this win-win solution that everyone has been waiting for? In this episode, I talk to journalists Daniel Howden and Charlotte Alfred of Refugees Deeply, an independent digital media project dedicated to covering the refugee crisis. They have investigated the impact of the compact models in Jordan and Lebanon and found that what was meant to work in certain ways on paper turned out quite differently in practice. To start off, Charlotte Alfred tells us about the compact and their research for Refugees Deeply. So um, we started out um, asking the sort of biggest questions of um, what the compacts that were signed in Jordan and in Lebanon in 2016 um, attempted to do um, and where they came from. Um, So the main idea of the compacts being um, that with um, a million uh, Syrian refugees in Jordan and around a million and a half Syrian refugees in Lebanon um, and two economies um, that are struggling in in various ways. Um, Various uh, donors, um, uh, national politicians, international experts sort of coalesced around the idea um, of a new way of both um, supporting uh, refugees to access sort of decent livelihoods in the countries where they currently were um, while finding ways for refugee work, refugee labour to be of benefit to those countries, to be of benefit to Jordan and Lebanon. So we started out by looking at well, where did this where did this idea come from? Who who were the were, who were the players who um, brought these ideas together? Um, and they sort of coalesced around um, the February 2016 conference in London, where uh, the two compacts sort of originated. Firstly, um, with Jordan, um, which was a combination of um, grants and concessional loans to support infrastructure pro- projects in Jordan, um, exemption from uh, the EU rules of origin, a tariff barrier, um, and in exchange, um, the government of Jordan pledged to create job opportunities for Syrians. Um, the, in Lebanon, um, several months later, uh, Lebanon at the time of that conference um, didn't have uh, it didn't have a president. It hadn't had a national budget for years, um, and uh, it took several months for the sort of political impasse 
to to break, um, and uh, that happened in October. And then the month later, there was a there was a Lebanon compact, which was much smaller, much less um, much less well known, much less talked about, um, and had sort of much vaguer terms. At, at that stage, Lebanon pledged to uh, sort of streamline access to um, jobs and to improve refugees' access to um, regularize their status, but there was less kind of specifics there. So we, so we looked at kind of how that all came together. And then the big question was, so what happened? Um, who, who was impacted um, in those kind of early days, um, all the attention and the interest, uh, particularly going towards Jordan? Um, what policy ideas came out of that? What was tested? What worked and what didn't? Um, and then in Lebanon, where there was a, a lot less um, sort of attention, focus, and, and real political obstacles um, that people were trying to uh, navigate through, um, what, what happened? What are some of those ideas about um, access to the labor market in exchange for boosting the Lebanese economy were tried in Lebanon and, and what happened to those? What would you say, um, what, what would you say were like the main differences between Jordan and Lebanon? Yeah, the main, I mean, the main, there was a huge amount of difference and every single, in every single um, sense. So in terms of how um, the idea developed, it developed um, very much um, in partnership with key figures in Jordan who um, saw an opportunity um, to attract um, uh, you know, investment um, into an economy that's really struggling with some big, um, large challenges um, exacerbated by the Syrian crisis, but very much pre-existing them. Um, and so that was a that was an experiment um, that was um, sort of ready to go in Jordan from the beginning. In Lebanon, um, as I said, at that particular time, um, there was there was very little. Uh, movement politically for for a wide number of reasons, and nothing really happened until um, there was a, a political uh, compromise at the end of 2016. And then some some things did start to happen. There were some uh, reforms that were uh, implemented on paper, but in practice, um, as we sort of detail in the report, um, were very very complicated, and um, there was a lot of resistance to implementing them. Um, and but the scale was much, much, much smaller and much slower um, in Lebanon. And the, I mean, that's that's how the the sort of political economy of the compact model. But obviously, the political economy of the two countries is extremely different as well. The role that Syrians have long played in the Lebanese economy, the um, historic um, proportion of Syrian workers in the agriculture and construction sectors, when many um, still work um, is completely different to, to Jordan um, and a lot of the, the challenges that emerged in Jordan um, were to, to do with how the sort of economy looked beforehand and, and trying to move Syrians into to roles um, that had been filled before by sort of migrant labour um, labor forces from other countries. Mm. So... Yeah, so so one of these uh, uh, difficulties I was going to ask you about. Um, so maybe um, just I suppose in theory the idea of the compact sounds quite simple. So uh, 
these countries get some uh, sort of economic benefits for providing jobs. So it's good for the refugees and it's meant to be good for uh, the hosting countries. So sort of a win-win situation. But but you sort of identify quite a lot of uh, obstacles to achieving that win-win scenario. Um, so one thing that you noticed um, in, uh, in, in Jordan, but perhaps in Lebanon as well, was that in Jordan, the government was trying to offer Syrians uh, work permits, but actually quite many refugees um, didn't want to take this up, but cho- chose to instead work informally. So how, why, why was that? Um, there's no there's no single reason um, why Syrians in Jordan didn't rush to to take up work permits. Um, there are some things to bear in mind, though. Um, before any of the compact agreements came about, there were already an, an estimated 200,000 um, Syrians working informally in Jordan's economy. So while some people might imagine that the Syrians were all sitting in refugee camps um, and would therefore be um, totally reliant um, on others to to help and to support them and therefore keen to, to jump at the chance, um, which I think is maybe the way that some of the international framers thought about this. Um, the reality was and is that nine out of ten um, Syrians in Jordan are in cities. Um, most Syrians are in in and around um, Amman um, or other urban centers, and they had already found some way to survive before this started off. So the step is not from out of a refugee camp um, and total dependence into a work permit and by extension a legal job. Um, it was um, one of the coping strategies that was um, there, which is to, you know, you're talking about people who already had a, a job, um, let's say, uh, working informally in the black economy in, in a restaurant or on a building site. You know, what were the incentives for them to switch from what they were doing already to getting a work permit? Um, now, initially, there was expense and hassle and bureaucracy associated with getting a work permit. Um, Jordan, in common with many controlled economies, um, has closed professions which are only open to um, Jordanian nationals. And those closed professions um, covers pretty much all of the kind of doctor, teacher um, kind of roles, but it even covers a lot of roles in, in hospitality. So quite a few of the jobs that, um, that Syrians were already doing in Jordan um, and a lot of Syrians, Syrians in Jordan in the kind of the big picture, the stereotypes, um, very much associated with good food and um, expertise in, in hospitality. So they've been hired in large numbers to take up those roles, um, roles which were actually formally closed to them. So obviously a Syrian who's being paid, let's say, 250 $300 a month, um, to work um, in a business, um, in a job, which they can't then actually formally take up. So even if they get a work permit, that's not going to help them to formalize their relationship. Um, a lot of the problems that initially encountered, you would encounter in practically any middle-income country that was looking to take um, jobs out of the black economy and bring them into the formal sector. Um, it suddenly you've got the complication of social security and benefits. Um, Syrians who come out of a country um, which even prior to the civil war they maybe had quite an antagonistic relationship with central government. They didn't 
the um, paying social security um, premiums as a form of taxation or an investment in future care, um, they essentially saw it as a punishment or a fine and something to be avoided. Um, other people, um, we feature a Syrian um, who had been a, a trainee, a trainee journalist and also a, a barber um, and working in a, in a barber's shop. Well, that job wasn't open to him. It wasn't that he could go and get a work permit and get the, and formalize the job that he already had. So from the outset, it proved a lot harder. Um, the response to that in order to help Jordan hit its targets and, and um, issue the number of work permits in order to secure the release of the next tranche of funds, um, basically started to liberalize and make that process easier. So whereas to begin with, um, other um, migrant workers who are in Jordan's economy have quite strict rules about how they can get a permit. Um, a lot of those rules were removed for refugees. So um, you wouldn't have to have a single employer if you wanted to get an agricultural work permit. Um, you could, excuse me, you could get a permit which um, allowed you to work for um, an agricultural cooperative. So theoretically, that would be for farm workers who are going to work for a number of different farms within a single cooperative. Um, what happened, um, we found out through our reporting in, um, with most of those permits, which present represent a large part of the, the roughly 40,000 active work permits that have been issued to refugees in Jordan is that they were essentially used um, by people who wanted to be able to travel within Jordan without fear of being um, inter intercepted by police or have to face questioning or to be moving outside of the boundaries um, of a refugee camp and face being sent back to, to a camp. So it was a useful way to give people the legal right to move around and they took advantage of that and did so. Um, the construction center um, sector has been opened up in a similar way and you no longer have to have a single employer who sponsors you for your work permit in order to get that. Um, this is not to say that um, the work, getting a work permit in Jordan is unduly burdensome or full of red tape. I mean, work permits in in practically every developed economy um, for non-nationals are fantastically more more bureaucratic and harder to get and with huge numbers of restrictions. Um, so there's nothing necessarily that unusual about the restrictions that um, Jordan places and the professions that it closed. But trying to open that really quickly, um, it was only partially opened um, because there wasn't, it's not easy to build widespread support for opening up labor markets to refugees in any country, certainly not one with high, late, high rates of youth unemployment. Um, so I think a good deal of understanding needs to be present in any discussion about this, about the constraints that are there from the Jordanian side. And at the same time, there needs to be some understanding of the fact that Syrians had already had to develop coping strategies, find jobs in the informal sector, scrape a way to survive before this was introduced. So in the early phase of this, which was supposed to be the easy part, um, where you would formalize the, the jobs of the 200,000 or so who were already in work, um, even that aspect of things proved a lot harder um, than people had anticipated. Mm. So I suppose the idea with the work permit is to uh, not just necessarily formalize, uh, well, to formalize the jobs, but also to create more jobs, I suppose, or to create more opportunities for jobs. But it sounds a bit more like the incentives, um, well, that it wasn't, they didn't necessarily make it easier to get a job. Um, 
And so you speak about the incentives to travel more freely, but are there any other incentives by formalizing um, employment? Do you have any other rights? Is there any healthcare benefits or anything like that um, that comes with um, having a work permit? Um, for the majority of um, Syrians who have gotten work permits, um, there's a, a form of social insurance um, which is essentially a short term. I mean, the way that they tried to get around this was to create a fund which you could later withdraw from in the event that you left the country. So if you think if you're a refugee and you're in this situation, you might be part of a resettlement program. Um, and you, so you may be leaving Jordan at some point if, you're, if your number comes up and you are going to be resettled by the UN. Um, you might be looking to um, travel on to another country in any case where other family members have gotten to, or depending on the situation, you might be looking at returning home. So what was needed and what's being experimented with is a form of social insurance, which is essentially a separate fund, um, where in the event that you then leave the country, um, a proportion of that money is then transferable out of that system. Um, that's led, so I mean, that arguably is um, a benefit of, of getting a work permit. Um, the other benefit, as we discussed, is that you are, you are more secure from any form of harassment. Um, and that's not just a question of travel permits. Um, it's also a question of um, having a secure legal status. So you know that if you get set up and you're paying rent or you make investments um, locally, that you're not then going to lose those by suddenly being relocated from one part of the country to the other, um, or getting into a situation where those can be taken away from you because you're vulnerable. Something which um, Charlotte could talk about has been a huge issue for Syrians who've tried to open businesses or, um, or to invest in, in Lebanon. Um, that's been incredibly complicated. People without legal status have been incredibly vulnerable. Um, to um, to sharp practice um, and uh, and corruption um, uh, in that context. Um, so there were benefits um, from from that point of view, um, but in any middle income setting in which there is a large informal economy, um, there's going to be both incentives for formal sector employment in some industries and then a whole series of incentives around um, avoiding certain forms of taxes, about um, bypassing certain regulations um, that lead to, um, lead to, to informal economy um, activity or black economy activity. So Jordan's no different from, from that point of view. Um, and these problems um, and the thing that we encountered often during this reporting was that a lot of these micro problems are not visible from the high level um, policy um, standpoint. So ideas that can look really good in, um, in a paper or proposal of discussion or consultancy uh, at the high level, um, then for, for, for these kinds of micro reasons and issues of incentives and nudges um, on, on a ground level, then don't play out as people that anticipated. Um, I think it's we're nearly two years on from the original compact being agreed. So many people would argue that um, a lot of the initial problems are fit into the category, let's say, of fixing the plumbing in order to get things working. So there's two, two really, in, in, a simple, in the simplest terms, two schools of thought in response to what's happened in Jordan. One is that 
this is a pioneering program. There are a lot of practical fixes and lessons to be learned and tweaks and adjustments that need to be made. So in, in essence, we're fixing the plumbing. And the second point, the second viewpoint on it um, is that there are major structural issues which prevent this from working um, and that uh, a compact which exchanges aid and concessional loans for opening up a labor market is not the right tool for transforming um, a relatively closed economy into an export-led um, engine of job creation. Um, so there are arguments in favor of both viewpoints, but th those roughly, um, I would say, are the, the two viewpoints that emerge. Yeah. Uh, maybe, Charlotte, do you want to um, uh, talk about maybe if there were any similar issues um, around employment uh, and, uh, and what Daniel just mentioned about um, businesses in, in Lebanon? Yeah, so just to be clear on the issue of work permits, there was never any serious effort to expand um, Syrians' access to work permits in Lebanon in any comparable way to Jordan. Um, just to kind of the numbers, I think, um, pretty stark. Um, so that there's an estimated 1.5 million Syrians um, in Lebanon um, which is about roughly a, a quarter of the population um, and surveys differ but roughly half are, are working. Um, last year um, and the year prior 200 new work permits were issued for Syrians so um, for example during the reporting process trying to find uh, Syrians who had a work permit was a reporting challenge um, because 200 um, new permits per year out of 1.5 million is, is obviously very small. Um, one of the, the people um, that we met um, was a, a butcher and a, a restaurant owner and entrepreneur um, in the northern city of Tripoli. Um, and he had tried really, really hard to get a work permit um, in order to um, keep his shop open. So the, the lack of a, of a work permit um, in Lebanon um, makes people very vulnerable to the political tides of the day. Um, there is not an organized labor enforcement um, within Lebanon. The Ministry of Labor has very small capacity, um, but there is a, a serious um, populist um, discontent um, that rises um, in response to specific political events um, that uh, causes either um, a labor, you know, labor shut crackdowns um, or at least uh, protests um, and often it culminates in uh, municipal evictions. Um, so, so this butcher, his name is Ghanem, um, he um, had had his, shut, his uh, restaurant and shop shut down three times in the last year. And every time um, he was given a new sort of requirement, oh, you need to hire half um, Lebanese employees, you need to find a Lebanese business partner and put it all in um, their name. The partner then took all his money. Um, and finally, he was told the only way that he can um, both get a get a sort of permits for his staff and then also um, what underpins that which is legal residency for himself um, would be to go back to Syria with his family and he, he wasn't willing to do that he didn't feel that was safe um, 
what he said was, I, I know of another um, Syrian business that has got permits and I'm pretty sure um, they managed to do so um, by using payment or connections, but I'm, I really want to do this straight. I want to play this straight up, um, which speaks to kind of some of the underlying issues that face um, both Syrian and Lebanese business owners and employees in, in Lebanon. Um, I would say some of the kind of bigger points that Daniel mentioned about Jordan um, also quite different, play quite differently in Lebanon. Um, part of the challenge in Lebanon um, is understanding that uh, Syrians have played a huge role in the construction and agricultural sectors for years and years, and that those sectors are almost entirely informal. There are very, very few informal jobs in those sectors. Um, but then there's also just a lack of clarity and um, a real um, shifting of the boundaries within what the regulations are. So there were a series of regulatory reforms that happened in Lebanon after the compact and after the London conference um, that were, were designed on paper to address some of these issues for Syrians, not on the issue of work permits, but on the issue of legal residency. So one of the things that has happened in the last two to three years in Lebanon is that fewer and fewer Syrians have been able to uh, renew their papers that they are legally um, resident in the country. And there's many reasons for that, including kind of bureaucratic obstacles and financial obstacles, and also resistance within um, the sort of government bureaucracy to giving status to Syrians um, because of fears that if that number of Syrians stay in the country, it will upset the country's uh, balance between different sects and different um, political factions. Um, as I mentioned, one in, one in four uh, of the population being Syrian, it's a huge impact on a tiny country um, that isn't so far um, out of a very, very long civil war. Yeah, one question I was going to ask there about these sort of um, political tensions is that, well, I think, Daniel, you mentioned before that it's not easier for for Syrians in Jordan to get a work permit compared to other migrant workers. Uh, so is perhaps that potential tension between other migrant workers and, and Syrians, but also uh, in your report, you write a little bit about some tensions um, between Syrians and uh, and locals uh, over potentially over competition of jobs. So did you notice a lot of that? Does that play a big role in uh, in this? Jordan isn't a place where, with an open public square, where dissent or criticism of the government or um, the royal family is a feature of day-to-day -day life. Um, we gave the example um, of a Jordanian lawyer who was organizing a workshop for lawyers um, and considered whether to include um, Syrian lawyers who might be in the country and very quickly was contacted by um, Jordanian colleagues of his to say, what are you playing at? Um, this is a closed profession. He wasn't proposing work for Syrian lawyers, it's just him proposing to include them in a training. But even that kind of concession to Syrian lawyers being active in Jordan um, was very quickly um, criticized by colleagues of his. So there are 
under the surface pressures. Um, they're not visible. It's not that large protests are taking place in the street with Jordanians saying that the government needs to stop making concessions to refugees. Um, it's these kind of tensions which are, wouldn't, aren't immediately visible um, to outsiders. But that is the way in which Jordanian politics works. Um, it's a lot, a lot of its private conversations behind closed doors. Um, but it is nonetheless real. I mean, there are real constraints in terms of what is possible. Um, and also from conversations we had, with Jordanian government officials knowing that um, its own social compact in Jordan, which for a very long time um, has relied on the royal family giving um, and the government um, by extension, giving public sector jobs to the Transjordanians, the original Jordanian residents um, as such, um, and giving scope in the public sector to the very large Palestinian population in Jordan um, who are given some space within Jordan's private sector. Um, so it's quite a delicate balance. A lot of it's to do with patronage and um, sharing out of resources. Um, a lot of qualified Jordanians essentially are queuing um, for public sector jobs. Um, a lot of highly qualified Jordanians leave from work in, in, in professional positions around the rest of the Gulf states. So then trying to open that up um, in a way that would make sense to, um, to development economists or to um, a liberal economist or World Bank Orthodox economist, um, there is, the, there is the question of what's politically possible in Jordan, which isn't easy to understand because um, there aren't um, elections, as you might understand them in a European context, taking place. There aren't outlets of a completely free press, etc. Um, but those political constraints do exist. Um, and there is the danger um, that Jordan feels that it's being used as a dumping ground for refugees that, um, that wealthier countries don't want. Um, the difference, I would say, between Jordan and Lebanon in, in this instance is that the Jordanians understood very clearly from early on at the government level um, that they were providing a global public service um, and that was a global public service that, that Jordan deserved to be um, remunerated for, for providing. And there were senior figures in World Bank, in DFID and in other organizations who recognized the legitimacy of that argument. Um, there's a quote, and um, I'm stealing from Charlotte's work here, um, but there's one of my favorite quote from the report, that Jordan went to London with a concrete proposal. And what did the Lebanese bring? A description of a disaster without any vision of what to do. Um, for me, that captures the, the, the different starting points. This wasn't just about what the international community could um, wanted to do in terms of getting these countries to stabilize very large refugee populations before they might be tempted to move on um, towards Turkey and to Europe. Um, it was also a question of what the countries themselves, how they viewed um, the possibilities presented by large-scale refugee hosting. Jordan saw an opportunity um, at a very senior level to get more in return for what it was going to end up doing anyway. Um, and Lebanese politics were just so much more complicated at the time. And I'd just add to that, um, that there are people within the sort of very complicated and raucous and constantly um, evolving Lebanese political scene that, that, saw, that saw that argument, but it hasn't 
been um, there hasn't been any political opening in order to um, put any of that into practice. So um, we're talking about sort of attitudes towards refugees and attitudes towards refugees working. Um, it's that the the um, resistance to refugees presence and resistance to refugees working is very visible in Lebanon. Um, but as in as in many countries, the sort of visibility of the hostility doesn't necessarily um, track to um, the majority of the attitudes. So there's large perceptions of competition over jobs. Um, actually, the areas where there are competition over jobs are very small and affect a very small amount of the labor force. Um, they're very dependent on um, the political and sort of sectarian tapestry. So in some areas, um, it's much worse than others. Um, and after particular events, for example, um, specific flare-ups on the border or um, a very sort of uh, prominent case in the local media um, of a crime by a Syrian, then there will be sort of flare-ups. There'll be um, protests, evictions, um, municipal leaders uh, making threats against Syrian refugees. When you actually talk to lots of people, um, there's, as anywhere in the world, people have very complicated feelings. Um, the relationship between Lebanon and Syria is very, very complicated in itself, having uh, Syria played um, a, a big role in uh, Lebanon for, for many, many years. Um, there are uh, extremely strong ties and there's a lot of resentments. Um, and the country has been divided since the beginning of the Syrian war um, over the role that it might play, um, but it has been united over trying to prevent the war spilling over into Lebanon, which is kind of seen as a minor miracle, but it didn't. Um, so people have really complicated feelings. And one of the sort of truck, truck, Lebanese truck drivers who I spoke to um, made the point really clearly saying, you know, we don't, we, don't have any, we don't have any jobs anymore for Lebanese truck drivers, the Syrians. Um, they just need to rent a room. We want a house. The Syrians are going to eat anything, but the Lebanese, we, we like our bellies too much. Um, and he, he described sort of going to, you know, eat his, his lunch every day and the Syrians um, would sort of work through his lunch break. And he sort of is both, um, uh, he, he has a lot of empathy for them. He also feels resent, resentment towards them. And he recognizes that um, they are, you know, his, uh, his colleagues and his brothers, but they also kind of have a, um, a, different, a different life now, which is making his a heck of a lot harder. Yeah, uh, that's really interesting because it resonates so much to an extent of, of the debate in Europe. Um, but so finally, I was, uh, was going to ask you, you, you tell this story about Miriam, um, to a Syrian refugee in the Satari refugee camp who, who who's, uh, started um, a, a quite successful business, I think, but you, you might want to tell us the story, uh, you know, better. Um, but, I, but I found it quite interesting. So, so we talked a lot about uh, refugees living in urban urban areas, but there's also been some attempts to provide jobs for uh, refugees uh, living in camps. And uh, but the story of, of of Miriam seems to be a story of just quite a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of. Uh, difficulties in in navigating the system and actually being a bit creative and innovative um, yourself. So, um, how did you find that that was the kind of room for people to actually, um, yeah, to, to to be a bit creative and innovative and um, and uh, to make a living? Miriam is the kind of um, person you can find in refugee camps um, all over the world. Um, 
she arrived in Zathari, um her family left um, from from an area not far across the border, um, and Zatari has quite a lot of people from the same um, largely agricultural areas um, on the other side of the border into, into Syria. Um, Miriam came from a family who were already running their own businesses um, in in Syria, and immediately on arriving in, in Zatari, set about trying to raise capital and find tradable goods and get on with setting up a, um, a, a shop. Um, there's it, any reporter that ever goes to Zatari never fails to write about the supposed Champs-Élysées. It's like this little slice of color which appears in everything from the New Yorker to the, um, to the Guardian. Um, it's not even clear that many people in the camp refer to it as the Champs-Élysées. It's the same as any other refugee camp you ever go to. It's got shops. Um, and Miriam's got on with the whole business of, of trading. Um, at the same time, the, the big organizations have come in with their kind of blueprint for how this is going to work. They've got job centers. You go in and you sign on at the job center. They're going to help you navigate getting um, job work permits and then jobs um, primarily either in farming or in the in garment factories. Um, so Miriam, until now, has had to queue up for permission to travel out of Zatari in order to go and meet with suppliers or to find products or to find buyers and basically in the same way as anyone who was running a shop she's got these kinds of logistics and stock questions and stuff and not being able to get in and out of Zatari um, puts huge constraints on how she can do that um, so she was getting on with this regardless of the formal structures and the formal structure only becomes interesting to her when she um, when she sees an opportunity maybe to get an agricultural work permit which would then give her would save her the time of having to queue up and to um, every time that she wants a, a permission to leave. I mean, you can you can walk out of a camp like Zatari, but you won't be able to come back in um, unless you've got official permission to go. So if you're running a business in Zatari, your choices were to go and queue for hours on end in order to get one of the few legal permissions that you could to travel out of the camp for whatever reason. You say that you've got a relative you need to go and see, etc. Um, the work permit was another essentially another workaround which would give her permanent permission to come and go from the camp so the kinds of solutions that get drawn up um, on the on the planning table that conceived as one thing when they arrive on the grounds um, people have their own agency their own ideas about what they want to do um, and they will adapt the these big ideas and to their own needs and uh, as they see them um, on the ground. So um, Miriam's getting on with it. She hasn't yet got a work permit or hadn't when we, um, when our reporting team spoke to her. Um, but she's making a living um, inside a private sector that was set up um, to meet the needs, the basic needs beyond what's provided by UNHCR and others um, inside, um, inside Zatari. Now that's not part of um, the Jordan Compact, but some of the ideas that came up as a product of the Compact might get adapted to Miriam's world and her needs. Um, and that in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, if we think that the big ideas and the way that they play out on the ground have got to be, have got to follow exactly um, what they were conceived to do. Um, what we tried to do in one part of the report, which ended up being quite complicated and unsatisfying, was to move away from 
the work permits have been created and look at the ultimate indicator, which is Syrian household income. Now, we haven't got really a very satisfying answer um, for that. Ultimately, there's no point in the compact if, um, unless we can see that it has some kind of impact um, on Syrian household income in Jordan. Um, the data just isn't there at the moment. There is a study that's going on that's going to report later this year, which should give us a much better impression. There is partial data, which we've included in our report on refugees deeply, um, but that's slightly contradictory. It doesn't give us a very clear indication of whether, on the whole, Syrian households are much worse off or much better off than they were two years ago. Um, but certainly that's the big question. It's not necessarily know how many work permits have been issued, how many new jobs have been created. I mean, the answer to new jobs created is that there, we couldn't find a single expert in Jordan telling us that there has been net job creation. So um, looking beyond that, though, has the attempt to um, make it easier for Syrians to get legal permits um, that allow them to move around and to be where they are without threat of harassment or other issues, um, has that helped to create greater security and helps their household incomes. We'll know more when um, when the reports come, when the data sets are complete and when um, when the reports are available a little later this year. Charlotte, do you have anything you want to add? No, just um, on the impact on refugee incomes in um, Lebanon as well, very, very partial picture, um, but the latest studies were done um, before the reforms that I'd mentioned earlier had been in place. So we don't really know whether it, even the, the small reforms that have been pushed through have improved uh, substantially refugees' um, ability to get legal residency or their um, incomes. Um, but we know that at least until uh, about uh, February, March last year, um, incomes were pr pretty static. Um, and the um, levels of poverty and the um, lack of uh, ability to have legal residency um, was, was both growing, was continuing to grow. To find out more about the report by Refugees Deeply, please visit our website talkinmigration.com. That was all for this time. Thank you for listening.